Hello, and welcome to the 31st episode of the Crystal Clear Watchmaking Podcast. I'm your host, Luke, here with my co-host, Jay, and an extra special third person. Do you want to announce yourself? Carell from Barrel Hand Watches. Yeah, and it is really awesome to have you on. I wanted to just toot our own horn for a minute. Somebody, <laughs> somebody messaged us on Instagram. They were like, oh, I would love if you did an episode on independent watchmakers. We're not going on websites and looking at independent watchmakers. No. We have a literal independent watchmaker here to talk to us. And so we're going above and beyond for you guys. You got to rate us five stars, iTunes. You've heard it all before. (laughs) (laughs) So you want to tell us a little bit about your independent watchmaking? Yeah. Uh, Maybe I should give a backstory into how I got into it because I'm not... Uh, traditionally trained as a as a watchmaker so I come from a micro mechanical engineering background and when I was in college I started out uh, I was just on YouTube looking at some videos and I remember stumbling on one of Erwerks they had like this cool CGI rendering of an exploded view and the watch kind of coming together and I had just never seen anything like it before. It was uh, kind of like an engineer's wet dream. And I had never seen this kind of watchmaking. I didn't know that it existed. So as soon as I saw it, I was like, all right, cool. I have to save up and buy one of these. But at the time, I didn't know what an expensive watch was. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with Erwerk. They're another independent watch brand as well. They remind me of MBNF. They're like, yeah, yeah. They're so like they're MBNF's kind of the slightly band. wilder cousin or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they got a little bit of sci-fi influence, and they're they're definitely not your standard watch. Um, so at the time when I was looking at these watches, I, I thought an expensive watch was like five hundred bucks or something like that. I had no idea <laughs> of like the the level that watchmaking could go to. And so when I looked it up and I saw they were the price of like a house, I I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to own one anytime soon. So how could I go about kind of interacting and learning about it in the meantime? And so that kind of got me down the rabbit hole of uh, trying to model uh, that piece, the Erwerk UR202 um, on SolidWorks, a 3D CAD modeling software. So I spent about a year uh just geeking out on all the intricacies of this watch and learning all about it and recreating the watch basically from scratch, just based on uh, a bunch of pictures that I'd found online. And once I had a full 3d model of it, I said, well, damn, I have all these parts ready to go. I might as well try to manufacture it. And that kind of got me into all the 3d printing and prototyping and eventually i had finished a fully working erwerk homage so to speak and i had an article published about it and shortly after the article was published uh, erwerk had reached out to me uh, saying they would want to meet me and see the the piece in person so for me it was a huge honor just to see that they understood where i was coming from i wasn't trying to knock off their watch or uh, you know, make a profit off of it. It was just I was a total fanboy of their work and wanted to uh, kind of learn about all the little details of their watches. Mm-hmm. And when I went out there to meet with them, uh, they kind of inspired me to start my own company. And that's where Barrel Hand started in a way. And Project One, uh, I started sketching it out as soon as I was flying back home from Switzerland. Uh, which is the piece you see now that I've been working on Instagram for the past six years. That's awesome. It's it. The new piece is so nice. I have to say, <laughs> thank it's, you. It's, it's really cool. They let you, like they like kind of like supported you instead of like saying, "Hey, just, you know, we're gonna sue you," or something like that. Yeah, for sure. I I think if it had been like Rolex or Patek, yeah. <laughs> I would have gotten just like a cease and desist, yeah. obviously. But I I think with them. It's such a niche brand that not many people know about it. And I think it's also the intention behind why you're doing it too. They saw that I was just some college student just geeking out over their watches and 
wanting to learn about it. And it was really cool that they saw it that way as well. Because that could have changed the complete traje trajectory of all you're doing if the first company was like, told you to screw off, you know? Yeah, 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 for sure. And these guys were my idols too. I looked up to them a lot. So yeah. The idea of being able to meet them and getting a lot of uh, sage words and encouragement from them was really helpful in uh, my trajectory long-term. That's pretty cool. Uh, I have two questions about this story. One is, so did you wear watches at all before this adventure? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I had never had bought a watch, and the, the first watch I, I really owned was this Urwerk 202 that I made myself. Honestly... I totally understand where you're coming from because I had never owned a watch and then I saw the Vianney Halter Deep Space Turbion and Ooh, yeah. that's what was like, okay, I need to take apart watches. I want to see what's going in, going on in there. Um, obviously, I haven't built a watch like you have, so not, not close, but the beginning was similar, but then you just went way further than I did. <laughs> yeah. So for you, a lot of watchmaking is the appreciation for the engineering side of it, you would say? Absolutely. That's like 100% my interest. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I come from, too. But I don't know how to use, like, uh, AutoCAD or anything like that, so... Yeah, I think that's what got me into watchmaking as well, is realizing that it was the the perfect mesh of, like, really high technical engineering combined with uh, a lot of like creative artistic outlet because uh, when I was going to school I I didn't see myself just crunching numbers and sitting at a desk from nine to five my whole life um, and but I really enjoyed engineering and the math involved it was just like having something to apply it in a creative way and I feel like watchmaking was this perfect mix to where you could have really technical uh, engineering side of things, but also have uh, just almost a blank slate for creative artistic design. And, and, and what better, like, which engineering did you say you were in? What, micro engineering? Yeah, mechanical engineering and then specialized in like micro mechanical. So we'll see what better, what better uh, degree to have for watchmaking than that? It's like Mary's perfectly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the other question I had, when you made that first prototype of an Urwerk, you said, oh, I've got all the parts in my AutoCAD or whatever, so I should just print them. But some things you can't print. Hairsprings, mainsprings, yeah. jewels, obviously. Uh, what did you do for uh, the gear train? That's that's my big curiosity. So we started out, we had a, just taking a base movement and then modifying the gear train so that you can put a module on top of it. So the the initial prototype that I had for that airwork was based off like a Salita SW200. Okay. And then eventually switched that to a Miyota 9 series. And then I was in mid process of switching that to like an ETA, but basically they all do the same thing. It's taking a base engine that's reliable and you know works well and then building something off of it. And it's actually not much different from what Urwerk does themselves. If you look at like their early pieces, a lot of it is they take a base movement. They're not designing the mainsprings and hairsprings all from scratch. They take something or have something somewhat custom made, and then they build modules on top of it for their time displays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because to do everything from scratch, not only is it super time consuming, but you're kind of having to redo a lot of technical work that someone's already established and fine-tuned. And done to a very high level. Right. And I, I think that's what's really cool with watchmaking is it requires a lot of different specialized skills. And it's very rare that you'll have one individual that can make an entire watch from scratch unless you're George Daniels or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it pretty exactly. much requires 20 different artisans that all spend a decade fine-tuning their skills to be able to make one cool piece. So so uh, I have a question on that topic of modifying existing movements. And this is because you two are like hardcore watchmakers and I'm kind of like the outside person looking in. So my question is, 
at what point, like, let's say you modify, uh, like you said, Salida movement, at what point does it not become a Salida movement anymore? You've modified it so much. Like, is there a point where it's like, you at like you're using a movement and you're attributing it as a Salida movement, but then you modified it so much now that it's not even that anymore. Um, I would say usually it doesn't get modified as much as you would think. So right. what, when someone's modifying a movement, they're basically taking, a it's almost like the powertrain of a car or something like that, where they're taking an engine that's off the shelf and right. it does the, the winding for you. It stores the energy. Uh, it does the timekeeping and it has like all the gears ready to go. And it all gets directed into a central post usually where you have your hour hand and minute hands and seconds. Uh, and then what I would do is modifying the gear train for the hour hand minutes and seconds so instead of it being geared for uh to do one rotation every 60 minutes maybe it does one rotation every 30 minutes or one rotation every 10 minutes you're basically modifying uh the speed at which uh it's displaying the time uh for whatever your complication is so like uh... for her work they have uh like a wandering hour and so there's a disc shifting into play every every hour, but it's a quarter rotation, so they have to split it up. Uh, they basically reduce the speed by four. Okay. I think another answer could be if someone on Watch You Seek can't make a post comparing your watch to an existing caliber, it's your own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would say. It, it's definitely... There, there's a lot of gray area too because some people they'll they'll put like a custom rotor on an ETA movement and then say it's their their movement. Yeah, <laughs> there's definitely different levels of modifying. Yeah, it right. kind of reminds me of the like uh, cyborg questions, like how many computer parts can you put in a person before they're not a person anymore? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah, it's like when people modify car, like you said, the car example. It's like. Well, you modify the engine and then like some people take the base of like a Mustang and then it changes so much that they put slap their own name on it after a while. Yeah. Now, I was really curious. You talked uh, on your website about UV cured printing with the yeah. accuracy of one micron. I guess I have a few questions about that. The first question is just, I've got a 3D printer. It's a lame like PLA regular style 3D printer. How much does a printer like that go for? Um, so there's different levels. The machine that we use, I don't own personally. We we source it from another company, but okay. they'll they'll be upwards of like a million to two million dollars to get the the precision that we would need for prototyping. Jeez. Yeah, I was thinking that is like a way <laughs> higher like tolerance than any printer like the one in my in my house, you know. It's it's another level for sure, but what's cool to me is how quickly the technology is advancing. Because I remember I started doing 3D printing about 10 years ago when I was in high school, and we had a machine at the school that was it was like almost a hundred thousand dollars, and it printed at like 0.3 millimeters of resolution. So like your current desktop printer that you have is I'm sure a fraction of that price, but it's way more accurate. It does 0.1. Yeah, it does 0.1 pretty easily. So that's what I get excited about is some of these things are way out of reach right now. Like same thing with the metal 3D printing, but it's going to come to a point where eventually you could probably have one on your desk for like under 10,000 bucks. That's so crazy. Is 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 this the first time of is our 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 major watch manufacturer like is anyone else using 3D printing for watch parts? That, that, I mean, are you guys the only Not one that for you know? mechanical like prototyping, to my knowledge. There's some companies that are starting to use it. Um, like I know Airwork is doing it now for their modeling and just like prototyping purposes. Um, but most companies that are using 3D printing are using it uh, just to see how it fits, the overall look. Right. Uh, nothing mechanical testing. I pretty much had to do it out of necessity. I had, I was on a college student budget trying to make a really high end watch, 
And so if I wanted to like CNC machine all those tiny little parts, yeah, it's like, it would have cost yeah. a fortune. It would have cost like almost $10,000 per prototype. And I ended up making 30 plus prototypes. So it's just something that's totally unattainable. Whereas with 3D printing, I was able to do a bunch of small one-off parts and add a fraction of the cost. And that's pretty much what allowed me to do tons of iterations of prototypes without having to break the bank. Right. So I, I just wanted to make sure we were all accurate. There's a guy, Valentin Remonte, and he does 3D printed watches that are the final case is, is 3D printed. Um, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but they look 3D printed if you get my drift. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've seen this guy. No, this, this stuff's cool. It's the like ultra lightweight watch. Yeah, he's got the record for the lightest watch in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely more of a, a 3D printed aesthetic. But what he's doing is really cool. It's it's showing off that you can start to make bridges and uh, you can start to 3D print more and more components in a watch that used to be totally unattainable. Yeah, he's he's doing a tourbillon soon, I think. Oh, awesome. So is the whole watch 3D print? There's got to be parts that, like the whole watch isn't 3D printed, right? It's the the gears are still like from a base movement, I'm pretty sure. And he just imagine he takes the movement and then replaces the the plates that hold the gears with 3D printed parts instead. Okay. And then I'm pretty sure the whole case is 3D printed as well. Right. Uh, but like the gears, the balance wheel, all that stuff still has to be from another movement or manufactured right right in a different way so i was curious about the metal 3d printing that you have done how what is the accuracy for that is that also 0.01 millimeters or what kind of accuracy? Uh, <laughs> we're not quite there yet i would love it if it was because at that point you could just like build in your tolerances into parts and you wouldn't need to machine anything anymore uh, the precision that we we get on the machine we're using is uh, roughly like 10 to 20 microns, which is still Ooh. insane compared to yeah. what was available even in plastic just 5, 10 years ago. Um, so that allows us to print really high precision parts, but there's so much more tweaking involved um, because you're dealing with a lot of high temperatures to kind of like weld and make these parts fuse together when you're doing mm -hmm. th metal 3d printing and so when you have a lot of heat in the system there's more warping parts will shrink usually um, so you have to you have to do a lot of fine tuning for each individual part uh, before you get it right so i don't know if you see like on some of the the parts that we have there's like heat sinks built into it we have to like account for the orientation that it's going to be printed in because if it's printed standing up it could kind of like bend over or fall um mm -hmm. there's a lot of like it it would be nice if you could just upload a a 3d model into the metal 3d printer and it just worked out perfect every time but if you play with it enough you can get some insane precision with it because 10 to 20 microns is like if you took uh, your strand of hair and then you managed to flay it like four times that would be the thickness that we're printing at mm -hmm. crazy so when you're talking about the heat sinks i literally copy and pasted this sentence from your website because i wanted to ask you what it meant built-in lattice structures optimized dimension accuracy is this talking about the heat sinks to stop warping and stuff yeah so initially uh so there's two major types of metal 3d printing there's direct metal laser sintering um, where you're using a high-powered laser to weld steel powder together. And when we were making parts with that, it, it uses it introduces a lot of heat into the system, so you get a lot of warping. Um, so we had to build in heat sinks into a lot of the parts. And ultimately, we ended up switching to uh, metal binder jetting, which is a similar process, but it's... It, the it's not using lasers and it's not warping as much. So the heat sinks don't serve as much 
of an effect as it does for direct metal laser sintering. But mm-hmm. what we were, what it does help with is it just reduces how much material is on the parts. And when there's less material, there's less weight. And so you could imagine if there's a lot of weight on the top of the part, as it's printing, it'll compress the part. So by having these lattice structures, we create a really strong, uh, like skeletonized part, but it's not very heavy to where it'll compress or shrink the part. So it stays more dimensionally accurate. It feels like I'm talking to like a micro machining engineer or something. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost like he has a degree in the thing. (laughs) It's tough to to translate it too, because... Uh, sometimes I get so into like the the technical side of things that I also want to try to explain it in a digestible way. I thought it was pretty clear. <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah, I I thought it was clear too, and I absolutely know the least problem. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> I I think most people have a general understanding of like plastic three D printing, where it, it melts the plastic and it just kind of like makes your part, and then metal three D printing is a whole nother realm that some people don't even know of or understand like how you would even do that because it's a lot different of a process than the plastic versions yeah i haven't i hadn't even heard about it until just now yeah so with metal we can do steel titanium uh, you can do precious metals uh, aluminum steel tends to be the most precise and titanium is cool but it's a lot more expensive to do for sure Bronze is popular. Is that an option? Yeah, yeah, you can do bronze in Connell. Uh, like SpaceX uses uh, a lot of metal 3D printing for their uh, rocket systems. Interesting. Mm. Now, here's a, a bit of a more zoomed out question. So, when I look at your website, it says finished and assembled in the USA, Germany, and Switzerland. Most people don't like it to sound like their watch manufacturing is decentralized. Obviously, yeah. it's your first watch ever. You don't have some giant Patek Philippe factory to just make whatever you want, right? Yeah. So you need a helping yeah. hand. Um, so I guess what kind of stuff is happening where is my is the first part of the question? And then the other part yeah. of the question is people often talk about the Swiss being secretive and uh, or if you have not many parts, they're like, why, why would I help only 20 watches? This isn't worth you know, the time to, to make the parts or whatever. So how, how did all that go? Or was it easy to find collaborators? No, I, I think there's a lot to kind of break down from, from what you're asking. Cause I think one of the issues we have here in the U S is that there isn't just some one-stop shop where you can go and present your, your watch concept and just get it made. And they'll connect you with the strap supplier, the dial supplier, the case supplier, the screw supplier, the sapphire crystal. I mean, there's so many like specialized suppliers and skill sets you need to make a watch that uh, it makes it really difficult to do that here in the U.S. because there's no infrastructure. And so initially I had gone to Switzerland to try to find uh, some of these one-stop shops, but The issue with that is that they know they have the monopoly so they can charge out the nose for uh, whatever they want because they know you don't really have another option besides maybe going to China. But for a project like this, that's just not even uh, an option with how complex some of the more mechanical features are. Mm -hmm. So I, I quickly realized, though, that we have so many talented people here in the U.S. and it's just a matter of connecting the dots. Like we have amazing uh, leather workers, woodworkers, dial makers, uh, machinists, watchmakers. Like we have all these talented people here in the U.S. They're just, we haven't connected everyone together yet. And I think that's the only, that's one of the major strengths that the Swiss has is that for the past hundred plus years, they've been, all working together, collaborating. And so when one manufacturer needs a dial or needs some screws, they know exactly where to go. Whereas here in the US, it's not really the case. Um, and, and the other thing too that I, I wanna like unpack with that is 
it's probably part of my wording too, but all the assembly itself, uh, like the machining assembly finishing is done here in the U S um, okay. what we do get externally. So the metal 3d printing is done in Germany, um, just because they have the, the best machines and the team we work with is really helpful at like fine tuning and getting the precision we need. Uh, and I haven't been able to find anyone that comes close to uh, that precision here in the U.S. So until then, I'm going to be using them as the the 3D print metal supplier. And then for Switzerland, the only parts we use from there would be the the Superluminova, just because oh. that's kind of like the gold standard. Interesting. And then the movements we use, so we have a base engine that powers our module and our time displays, and it's a Eterna 39. So that comes out of Switzerland. I love Eterna. Nobody knows about those guys, but they're, oh, yeah. they're the best. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> underrated for sure. It's a really cool movement, and working with it for the, the past couple of years, I've, it's, been, it's been really cool just to see how much of an improvement it is over say like even an ETA, which a lot of people consider to be, you know, this really reliable workhorse that this one just takes it to another level in terms of, uh, the gear train construction, the accuracy that they come out of the box. It's really cool. And it's been a, a nice movement to work with, especially for a project like this. Well, you know, Etta is just Eterna's baby in the first place. So it just makes sense that yeah. Eterna would be back on top. In the end, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we've been talking about uh, the, you know, the, the mechanical nitty gritty, but stepping to the design side, I'm I'm looking at your project one like design. It looks very different, obviously, and I know you had got inspiration from you know the first watch was the the Ur, Ur work. Um, what what other does did you have any other design inspirations? Like, how did you come up with this the the design of this watch? Uh, there's definitely. Uh, like a sci-fi influence for me i kind of wanted to make something that almost felt like you were owning a spaceship for your wrist so if you yeah. look at where the crown is there's the it's like a burnt orange crown yeah I and see. that kind of resembles the the afterburner exhaust if you will and then around it you'll see there's like a blued titanium tip right yeah um and so that's uh, heat treated so that it looks as if I don't know if you've ever seen like a car exhaust or a rocket exhaust where it has the titanium gets heat heated to such a temperature that it turns this bluish purple. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of like emulate the the idea of this uh, this exhaust thruster port for the the crown system, and at the same time, the crown is also. Uh, modeled off one of the Mars rover wheels. Mm. So if you were to look like inside, you'll see there's kind of like this really wireframe spoke pattern. Um, just little things like that. But there's definitely like a lot of space influence. And I think with that, uh, a lot of the design was just came about based off what I was able to do with uh, the technology I had available. So like with metal 3D printing, you're pretty much able to do any geometry or complex structure you want uh, that would be really difficult to machine otherwise. And like, if you look at the where the hours are, there's kind yeah. of like the shield. It's called the top plate, and it's got a honeycomb pattern in it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that that piece, uh, the honeycomb served as a type of heat sink, but there's also what makes it cool is that you couldn't really machine that honeycomb pattern because if you had a drill bit, it would just be punching straight holes into the piece. Whereas with 3d printing, you could create, you know, like these perfect sharp corners, even at a really small scale. Um, so, so things like that, I wanted to incorporate into the piece, yeah. uh, partly cause it looks cool, but also it's showing off, uh, what you can do with metal 3d printing that you can't do with traditional machining. Um, and there's a lot of features like that across the whole watch. The lugs are metal 3D printed. Uh, the case back has like a crown release system that's metal 3D printed. Um, so a lot, a lot of the design is like partially inspired by 
you know, just like what will be possible in the future for watchmaking based on the technology that's currently available. Right. Yeah, it looks like very futuristic. <laughs> now, since it has a lug to lug of 44 millimeters, is that that's still the case, right? That was on one of the prototypes you had written that? Yeah, yeah. And because uh, I have small wrists, so I wanted it to be fairly wearable. So the, the watch itself is 44 millimeters, but then it has the lug to lug, which is uh, 44 as well, because the, the rear lugs are kind of like tucked in. So you have like hooded lugs in the back and then regular lugs on the front. So even on small wrists like me, it still wears really well. Right. It's basically automatically wearable at that point. My question yeah. is, I didn't find this dimension anywhere. How thick is this bad boy? Uh, it is 14 millimeters. <laughs> That's thinner than I thought. Yeah. Considering, I mean, if you look at the dial depth, I'll have to I'll have to share with you guys some of the new pictures because we just got the final piece in. Because um, a lot of the photos on the website are, are renders right now. Right. But the, the dial itself has tons of depth, which is one thing I really wanted to go for. So uh, being able to fit all that depth and dimensionality into a 14 millimeter watch is uh, really solid. And it wears really well on the wrist too. Yeah, I mean, 14 millimeters, I thought you were going to say like, <laughs> I don't know, a lot more for some reason. Yeah, but, yeah. But like, just like your average dive watch is like 13 millimeters all day. Yeah, yeah, it's not too crazy. Yeah, wow, okay, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, fitting all that stuff in there. Yeah, because you have to think there's a base movement. So imagine there's no time display module at all. You're usually going to end up with a 10 millimeter watch anyways. And then to to pack on, you know, the, the jump hour system, the linear minutes, um, all that stuff into an, an under four millimeters, including the crystal, uh, it's, it's about as slim as we could get it. It is pretty incredible. I'm I'm wondering how how thick is the um, Eterna movement? Uh, if, if it's I'm completely sure. unmodified, you know, just the base one. Yeah, if it's unmodified, I'm not sure off the top of my head, but usually it's around like four or five millimeters. And then you have about a millimeter two for the, the case back, like thickness. And then you have a dial that, and the hands, that's probably another two millimeters. And then a crystal that's two millimeters. So right off the bat, you, you almost always start out with a 10 millimeter watch unless you're working with some really thin movements. Now, I was looking at some of the 3D modeling that you posted, which you post very generously on your Instagram <laughs> that yeah, I suggest sure. any anyone that's interested in, in how things are done should really take a look at that. Um, so I was just having fun looking at some of the 3D modeling and you're moving around parts and stuff. And so that kind of gave me some questions so for example the cam path for the linear minutes yeah um so basically you've got like something poking down into that path and then moving around over and over and over and over again so how is that lubricated or whatever so that that cam path stays like tight tolerance over time and you don't like wear out the the path if you see what i'm saying yeah for sure so with uh, components like this, uh, we had the, there's a little guide that goes up and down that's for the minutes. And mm. that guide is made of aluminum. So it's it's super lightweight and it needs minimal lubrication because there's not uh, an extreme amount of force being applied between those two parts. And then you have a high polished steel dowel that makes contact with the, the cam groove. Mm -hmm. and so you could think of it so it's like a pin in a groove kind of like if you had a the needle in a record player where it's just following a track right um, that's a good that's a good explanation actually <laughs> so so like the pin that we use it's a high polished steel dowel and then it contacts the cam um but if you think about a dowel it's it's a curved surface so there's really like a small sil sliver of it that's actually making contact um so there's not there's not any noticeable wear over time. We had one of the prototypes where we ran it on a on a test rig to simulate like 20 years of wear, and I came out running just as good as when we put it in. Do you want to tell everyone what that test rig was made out of? 
<laughs> yeah. So we made a, a test rig out of Legos. That's once again, <laughs> being on a college student budget, trying to figure out a way to, to test these mechanisms uh, other than just wearing them. Because uh, when you're making a new watch, especially with... It's one thing, if you're making a new watch and you don't have any time displays or things that you're modifying, uh, there's not as much testing required, but where I'm adding uh, new mechanisms and an entire module to this movement, there's a lot of testing involved to make sure that one, my mechanisms work, and then also how those mechanisms are affecting the base movement and then modifying it according, accordingly so that everything's nice and smooth. So what we wanted to do is simulate, you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years of, of wear on this watch so we could get an idea of what that would look like. And so I made this Lego test rig where there's a motor and a gear train that links up to the crown of the watch. And then we have the crown uh, disengaged. So you can imagine like when you're setting the time, you're kind of like running through the time more quickly. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this whole gear train linked up to the crown and then we would just run it. And every hour uh, simulated close to, I think it was like a month of wear or something like that. So we just ran it for a couple days straight until we had simulated 20 years. And then we would look at it, inspect it, and uh, see if there was any issues with the mechanical system. And then on top of that, we've also been, I've just been wearing it every day whenever I can and beating it up, <laughs> trying to trying to see what potential failure points are so that we can address them before production. And how good does that feel to wear that? Oh, it's a lot of fun. It's been, it's been cool seeing, because uh, when I started out, I mean, the first, 30 prototypes were all 3d printed plastic and then the one that i've been wearing now for the past two years has been like a steel prototype so it's pretty heavy um, compared to the final piece which is in titanium uh, but it's cool to see it like a, a semi-finished version it definitely doesn't look like any other watch out there because i have a, a steel case and then some of the internals are still like this translucent 3d printed plastic so it, it it definitely looks like a prototype. <laughs> so so when you wear it out in public, do you get people asking, "Hey, what is that?" Uh, when I would go to watch events, for sure, it's definitely not the the usual like modified Seiko or mm -hmm. or Rolex Submariner. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's cool. It's cool to see people kind of geek out on the the engineering like I do as well, because there's a lot of little technical things that make it unique. Right. Now, what is, I mean, it's been a multi-year journey for you here. So you've had a lot of things that have probably gone not exactly as planned, and then you had to yep. fix them and so <laughs> on and so forth. What was the hardest part to get right with, with this watch? Uh, that's a good question. I, for me, it was the, the manufacturing for sure. It was, I remember finishing up, like all the CAD and having a fully working 3D printed prototype. And I figured at that point, I was pretty much done with the project. I was like, well, I have a fully working prototype. I have all the like <laughs> the CAD models, uh, the technical drawings for machinists. I just need to send it to a shop and they'll take care of the rest. And I quickly realized that it's, it's doable, but the one-stop shops are going to charge whatever they want. And it was really discouraging to get, you know, contact these one-stop shops. And one, they'd either ask for order quantities where it's like, oh, you got to order a hundred and they're going to be, you know, like 10,000 bucks a piece or something like that. It's just, it, wow. it got to a point where it just felt like it was an impossible task to get this thing made within a reasonable price point. And Are you saying you that's... didn't just have $100,000 to give them? Yeah. <laughs> you didn't just pull it out of your pocket? <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice. And, and even then, it's like, I, I wouldn't want to... I wanted to keep this a really, like, small production quantity because, to me, it's almost like a, a research project of uh, 
like showcasing all this metal 3D printing. And this one's definitely a really technical, almost concept piece that I want to use, uh, like what I learned from this project towards uh, my future projects, which might be a little bit more simple, but still kind of have the, the DNA of what this first project is. So, so you have plans for future models, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I have them all. I have the next project pretty much ready to go. So as soon as this one launches, I'm going to start prototyping and manufacturing the next one. Nice. Can you give us any tiny hint? <laughs> like a hint like retrograde hours or you know, something <laughs> like that? <laughs> I, uh, I won't give away too much, but one of the things that's been really interested interesting to me lately is the generative design i don't know if you're familiar with like that technology it's basically you give the computer some parameters and it'll it'll make a design for you in a way like ai design yeah yeah so some ai design so it's not like the whole watch is going to be designed with that but i I've been playing around with it and it might not be for the next project, but maybe for project three. Right. It's, 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 it's one of the ideas for something. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I think I can give away one of the, one of the parts that you guys can look forward to in the next watch. Part of it is going to be 3d printed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A very high likelihood that there will be some now, 3d printed parts. Guess what? Think. The next one's going to be 4d printed. <laughs> I think the other thing that I'm really interested in too is uh, there's so many like small independent watchmakers coming out of the U.S. and trying to kind of collaborate and bring everyone together and maybe it's to make one really cool piece or at least uh, just create a network to where everyone uh, can help each other out and work together Uh, because what I was saying earlier to where uh, there's kind of this lack of infrastructure here in the US but there's not a lack of talent it's just connecting those people together. Yeah, we I mean we've definitely been from doing this podcast I've seen so many different uh like you said artisans doing different aspects of uh watchmaking like we had a the a guy who made leather straps on and yeah it was like so much like you'd think it's just a leather strap but then it goes there's so much detail in it. Yeah, absolutely. That was Southpaw. Like, if you need guillaché, you can talk to uh, DM Tiffany timepieces. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's Shapiro in LA as well. There's a couple movement makers that are starting to do like their own in-house stuff across mm-hmm. the US. So it, it's cool to see kind of this resurgence in American watchmaking. Yeah, maybe one day there'll be the, the, oh, the Rolex of America or something. <laughs> yeah. So do you feel like you've moved from being a general micro-mechanics guy to being a watch guy now? Yeah, I mean, ever since I started the Eric project, I I just fell in love with watchmaking because it was everything I loved about engineering uh, in combination with a lot of like creative and artistic outlet. My, I, I could see this next question going two ways, okay? Because when you first started... The Urwerk was so far out of your reach, and it took you so long to make it. Did you buy watches just to enjoy watches in the meantime, or do you only wear your Urwerk homage and your uh, own prototypes? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much all I all I wear is the the Urwerk that I made, and then the the prototype that I'm making. I haven't really bought any watches other than the ones I've made. That is so unusual. <laughs> he, has, he has no time he's so busy doing this <laughs> but the the brands that i look up to that i if i had the money to do so would be like day bethune mm. um mbnf is really cool Erwerk. um i own a Erwerk 103 that i bought uh, two years ago so that's that's pretty much the only watch i've ever bought and i i wear that one fairly often as well have you how do you feel about Vianney Halter? Yeah, yeah, I love the deep space turbion. The Antiqua, it's it's very like fringe. It I, is. I I appreciate it from an engineering standpoint, 
it's not something that I would personally like wear or collect. The design is more steampunk than yeah, sci-fi. Yeah, but really cool. It's like it's executed very well if you're into the the steampunk aesthetic. It's beautiful in that sense. Um. So so I got a, a question. Where did you come up with your the name Barrelhand? Oh, <laughs> it came from. It's kind of like a anagram of my name. So my full name's Karel Bashand. So if you mix the letters around, yeah. it kind of makes barrel hand. <laughs> and it was just a, a username uh, for a while when I was on Instagram posting about the Erwork project. And then eventually when I started working on my own project, it just kind of stuck. And so I never went around to changing it and uh, ended up making a logo out of it and everything. <laughs> Now, the other thing that looks really futuristic about your watch is when you turn off the lights. Oh, yeah, you saw that today. <laughs> yeah, now, so you've got that awesome way of understanding the minutes, which I feel like people just need to go on your Instagram and look at it to truly understand. Um, but you've got a circular indicator that changes colors, and that tells you which side of the minute track to, to be reading, which is pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. Difficult to explain, but w when you see it, it's it's pretty. It makes it's sense. pretty easy to do a quick read. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got the like, the like color inserts for this minute track. Is that like loom that's mixed with epoxy? What what is that? So it's a loom composite that one of my friends makes down in LA, and so. He makes these loom composite blocks and then he machines them to the exact specs that we need uh, so that I can insert it into the, the cam plate and then it just sits flush and it looks like it's almost part of it. Um, but what's cool is that because they're actual pieces as opposed to like a loom paint, they absorb a lot more light because it's like half a millimeter thick, mm -hmm. whereas a paint might be like 0.1 millimeters so you get these really thick chunks of loom, uh, so it glows brighter, but it also holds the the charge for longer. They look like Fourth of July glow sticks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they glow just as bright too. It's really cool to see in person, uh, especially since those rings are kind of like on the outer edge of the dial, so it it kind of gives a soft light to the whole dial at night. Mm -hmm. You know what it reminds me of? Maybe this is the same guy. There was a guy who was, had like a Kickstarter project where he had a bezel like this. That was like, oh, the whole bezel that. was like loomy. It's not the same guy. I'm just wondering. I, I'm not sure. I haven't seen the Kickstarter. It was a while but, ago. I have no idea what it was even called. But. Yeah, yeah. Forge Glow. Yeah, Forge Glow. That is pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really cool material. And then the, the rest of the loom as well is, uh, like, all the indices that are with paint are super luminova. And how deep are those uh, those wells to put the super luminova into? Uh, so those wells are, like, 0.3 millimeters. So they glow almost as bright as the forge glow because they are pretty deep pockets. And they're more dense because it's just pure super luminova. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I like about doing the pockets because if you were to to print loom you you don't get as thick of a of a surf or as thick of a print and then you also have kind of like this doming effect whereas with this it's you get a thicker app application when you fill it into the pockets and it just looks cleaner i think i think it looks awesome <laughs> <laughs> so are there any other crazy space age materials in this thing i feel like we've talked about several of them but i wouldn't be surprised if there was even more <laughs> um so on the strap if, if you were to look at the strap there's uh there's a crown at the top of the watch so you have to have like a strap that kind of wraps around the crown mm -hmm. so we had to have a custom strap made that kind of fits around the crown and crown release system and the the issue we had was you had these really like small flanges of leather that would go up and wrap around the crown. And so what we did is we 
3D printed a steel insert that goes into the strap in that section to kind of reinforce the leather. Um, probably difficult to visualize, but if you were to go on my Instagram, there's a couple pictures of the strap and you'll see it's kind of like a two-pronged strap as opposed to like a standard just spring bar. And each prong is uh, reinforced with a 3D printed steel. And for that one, we use direct metal laser centering instead of binder jet. And what's the logic behind which one you choose there? Uh, that one, it doesn't need to be as precise. And we kind of just wanted to incorporate the technology just to be able to have both binder jet and uh, DMLS on the watch. So we, we could have done the strap insert in, D in binder jet as well. Um, but it was, it was an opportunity to do it with a different technology. So we wanted to just throw it in as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then maybe the other thing that, that we didn't talk about, there's a crown release system on the back and it's not necessarily technology, but it's a cool little mechanical interaction with the watch so that you, when you set the time and the whole crown release system is also 3d printed in steel. And what it does is it's just like a small little lever. So instead of like pulling and yanking on the crown uh, to set the time, uh, you flick the switch and it disengages the crown and then you can set the time and then you can just push the crown back in if you want it to be in winding mode. It's like, it's like a lever set pocket watch kind of. Yeah, yeah. Old school. <laughs> yeah, and what I like about those those interactions is it gives it gives you something to play around with uh, on the watch. And I, I think watches are kind of like this tactile experience where maybe there's some cool textures or uh, like, I don't know, some fun mechanical interaction uh, as you're setting the time or winding the watch just adds a little bit extra. I feel like that's the only reason people get chronographs. They just play with the buttons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like how often are you actually using it to time something important? <laughs> right. And if it was important, would you really use your chronograph? <laughs> right, yeah. You'd be on your phone for sure. So, Carl, so yeah, I, I see on your uh, page the uh, reservations open on July 31st, right? And you're going to be yeah. making 10 of them. Yeah, we're gonna make twenty total. Okay. And the first ten, we're we're gonna start production with ten, and then once we finish with those, we'll do the second batch of ten. Just because it's it's a lot of work, to, like it, it takes a long time just to make one piece, so we we have to break it up into batches. Right. Uh, for the watchmakers. So so are like the first ten spoken for already, or? Uh, we have right now. There's nine reservations out of the 20 okay uh, but those are split up so out of the first 10 i think there's five of them that are reserved and how how much money does someone have to lay down to reserve one of these uh they're gonna be thirty thousand us which is pretty darn reasonable when it's a one guy crew frankly right <laughs> uh generally generally because it's like you have to make as you said you've got all these parts from all over the place, it costs an arm and a leg to make them. Then you've got to have your, you're building a workshop from scratch basically and everything. Yeah. People get confused by these seemingly high numbers, but when I hear 30 on this watch, I'm like, wow, that is quite reasonable. What a reasonable fellow. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and I imagine it's more of a passion project than trying to like for profit. Right. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I would, I would be making these watches whether it paid the bills or not. It's just for me when I started this project, it was almost just to create a dream watch and what that would look like and what that would feel like and how the time would be displayed. And ultimately I wanted to be able to wear a dream watch that I made by myself from scratch. And then if other people want to buy it even better and it helps support uh, future projects as well. Right, I right. just had a really crappy idea, <laughs> but I want to share it with you. You know That's how good. you've got the you've got the honeycomb. Yeah. At night, okay, you get the loom through the honeycomb, which is pretty cool. Yeah. What if you put prisms in those little honeycomb spots? 
Oh, that would actually be pretty cool. <laughs> if you could fit some tiny prisms in there and it just refracted the light everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Just like getting crazy with it. I don't. That's yeah, probably yeah. obnoxious, but. <laughs> well, if you want to make a custom one, let me know. <laughs> um, I think these things are going to sell themselves. You're going to sell. I don't know if you're maybe going to sell 10 or 12 or 15 now, and then people are going to go to watch shows and show off their barrel hand, and then instantly all the rest of them will be sold. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to see the the public reception, because for me, I'm making it just because it's my dream watch and the designs that I like, but I also know that this kind of stuff is very niche, and what makes it fun when you're making watches like this is you're not designing it to please everyone. Whereas I think like sometimes you're making a Kickstarter brand watch and it's a diver and you make it almost as generic as possible to try to get as many people on board with your design. That's so annoying. I, I think this is kind of the opposite approach where I'm making it exactly how I would want it and what my, what kind of design language speaks to me. And if other people are into it, awesome and if they're not i am sure they'll still appreciate just kind of like the technical side of it and having an independent watch coming out of the u.s yeah that is so awesome i mean you you're just releasing your first watch and to me it's like one of the best watches released from the u.s like (laughs) i've got i've got you up there at the top and then you're sitting next to like shapiro for like classic styling you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) i appreciate it that's what's cool with watches too is there's so many different interpretations there's no right or wrong way to do it. Could you imagine yourself using um like maybe some old-fashioned finishing techniques uh in some of your future watches or are you going to stay fully uh future looking if that makes sense? Yeah, it's it's something I've been playing around with. I think what I really enjoy doing is taking this really uh, old school craft of watchmaking and kind of doing a, a modern futuristic interpretation of it and seeing the the contrast between the two is really cool too to where maybe part of it is uh, handmade or has like a guilloche pattern on it I, I think it would be cool to pay tribute to old school watchmaking and doing it in a futuristic interpretation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would love to see that <laughs> i mean i'm already loving but i could love even more my heart yeah, has yeah. no limits <laughs> yeah i'm excited to show you guys the next project yeah we, i mean I'm excited to see it this one hasn't even fully come out yet how soon is this new project going to start showing uh little sneak peek um, shots on instagram yeah so right now the current schedule i just got the final piece in uh two days ago so i've been doing photos night and day for the past two days and i'll, I'll send you some pictures so you can see because they're not they're not going to be on instagram until like july 31st um, but once the reservations open we'll be doing like press for you know all the all the different blogs and watch magazines and starting production for the first 10 pieces and while that's going on i'm going to start prototyping project two and in an ideal world, I'd like to have that ready so that come 2021, there's another project ready to go. You think we're going to order your next project a year from now? That's uh, yeah. such a crazy, like, compared to this schedule, that's like hyperspeed. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it's learned so much, though, right? Like, yeah, just got yeah, the first exactly. one out of the way. Yeah, that makes a huge difference is we, what, what takes so long when you're making the first project is like for this one, it took me two years just to build the supply chain and set up all the manufacturers uh, to be able to even produce the watch. And then there's a lot of things that I learned from the R and D process uh, during all the prototyping. And so it, it continually speeds up the process. It doesn't mean we'll be able to turn out a watch every month, but <laughs> I've been able to, kind of get a sense of how long things take and based off of this first project and the the progress we already have on project two 
uh, should be more streamlined to where I would I would like to ideally launch it next year. Right. So speaking of uh, doing press for the for the I, 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 for the project one, have you been doing other press besides like I mean we're very happy you're with us, but like you you came on to do a show with us. Yeah, I'm super happy to be on with you guys. I because what I like doing too is talking to other people that are just watch enthusiasts or you know people that are interested in the kind of stuff that I'm doing because it's maybe not for everyone. But I do definitely have lined up to do press with all the all the major like watch blogs. And so stuff like this helps out a lot. Just get the word out there because there's probably, I think there's a lot of people that don't know about this project yet that would be very interested in learning about it, even if they're not necessarily planning on buying it, just seeing the appreciating the technical side of it and seeing something come out of the US. Yeah. That's pretty different from what we're used to seeing. That's more traditional. And and, and just hearing like just hearing the story of how it got made, the the, the, the <laughs> backstory is like that's all plays into it, I think. Yeah, for sure. It's so much better than like, oh, I saw this five dollar watch on AliExpress. <laughs> then I carved my own thing into it. Then I sold it as a fashion watch for two hundred dollars, and I told everyone that I was cutting out the middleman and you yeah, know, yeah, <laughs> affordable luxury, blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that that floods the watch industry. Now this this is what we need going forward. I believe in this so much more. <laughs> yeah, this, I, I think <laughs> thanks, man. I think it's gonna sell out like so fast. Yeah, I'm curious to see as well. Uh, we haven't done any press yet other than just you know our documentation on instagram and we already have almost half of them reserved yeah so, so i'm that's... sure once we once we get it up on hodinky a blog to watch and quill and pad and all those other watch magazines it should hopefully fill out the rest of the the reservations yeah and, and that push is happening at the end of the month uh yeah probably early august okay so we get to read a lot of nice articles afterwards but you'll, yeah, yeah, you'll have sure. heard it here first. It'll exactly. be old news yeah. because yeah. you listen to the best podcast, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when the second model comes out, we're going to have to have you on again. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Well, is there anything else that people should know or or hear about? Um, I would just say if, if you're interested in the project or you want to see like what it takes to make a watch from start to finish, definitely check out the Instagram. Um, Cause we, I've been trying to document it since the very beginning. So if you want to go down the rabbit hole, you can scroll all the way back to the first sketch that I did of this watch and kind of seeing the progress over the past six years uh, to where it's at now. And the Instagram is at barrel hand. If you're interested in checking it out. I mean, not to use, not to bring out the French, okay? But this kicks ass, okay? <laughs> the Thanks Instagram, it's it's one of the best pages on Instagram, full stop. So. Yeah, especially if you're into watchmaking. I mean, it's like watchmaking heaven there. Yeah, that was one thing I really wished more brands did. Uh, and why I ended up doing it for myself is I was always curious to see the development of, of watch and what it takes because I think people get a better appreciation of what goes into each piece when you see all the work that's involved. And there's a lot of like new independent watchmakers that are doing the same thing. And I, I love seeing the process and learning about all the little intricacies of why something is difficult to make or it I, it's what I geek out on, especially from like an engineering or technical perspective. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, you, not everyone has thirty thousand dollars to buy the watch, but you could scroll through this Instagram and get appreciation as free, basically. Yeah, right? I think you can enjoy it just as much. Exactly. Yeah. Are you gonna hire some models to wear it, looking very <laughs> fancy, to post on your Instagram later? <laughs> yeah. I think I'm gonna. I'm going to keep it simple and uh, not do the whole brand ambassador thing. And just <laughs> let the watch speak for itself. I mean, if you want a very handsome man to wear one, you send me one for free. Uh, I'll post yeah. it as much as you like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
Obviously, it was amazing having you. I'm sure our listeners learned a lot, especially about all the different techniques that you don't really see too much in watchmaking right now. We'll see everyone next week. We'll continue to discuss gears, springs, oils, watches, brands, all things watches and watchmaking.